Section 24 of Expository Thoughts on the Gospel of St. John, Volume 1, by J. C. Ryle. Chapter 5, verses 40 to 47. The reason why many are lost, one principal cause of unbelief, Christ's testimony to Moses. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain, read by Marianne. John, chapter 5, verses 40 to 47. And ye will not come to me that ye might have life. I receive not honour from men, but I know you, that ye have not the love of God in you. I am come in my Father's name, and ye receive me not. If any other shall come in his own name, him you will receive. How can ye believe, which receive honour one of another, and seek not the honour that cometh from God only? Do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. There is one that accuseth you, even Moses, in whom ye trust. For had ye believed Moses, ye would have believed me, for he wrote of me. But if ye believe not his writings, how shall ye believe my words? This passage concludes our Lord Jesus Christ's wondrous defense of his own divine mission. It is a conclusion worthy of the defense, full of heart-searching appeals to the consciences of his enemies, and rich in deep truths. A mighty sermon is followed by a mighty application. Let us mark, in this passage, the reason why many souls are lost. The Lord Jesus says to the unbelieving Jews, Ye will not come to me that ye may have life. These words are a golden sentence, which ought to be engraven in our memories, and treasured up in our minds. It is want of will to come to Christ for salvation, that will be found, at last, to have shut the many out of heaven. It is not men's sins. All manner of sins may be forgiven. It is not any decree of God. We are not told in the Bible of any whom God has only created to be destroyed. It is not any limit in Christ's work of redemption. He has paid a price sufficient for all mankind. It is something far more than this. It is man's own innate unwillingness to come to Christ, repent and believe, either from pride or laziness or love of sin or love of the world. The many have no mind or wish or heart or desire to seek life in Christ. God has given to us eternal life, and this life is in His Son. 1 John chapter 5, verse 11. But men stand still, and will not stir hand or foot to get life. And this is the whole reason why many of the lost are not saved. This is a painful and solemn truth, but one that we can never know too well. It contains a first principle in Christian theology. Thousands, in every age, are constantly laboring to shift the blame of their condition from off themselves. They talk of their inability to change. They tell you complacently that they cannot help being what they are. They know, forsooth, that they are wrong, but they cannot be different. It will not do. Such talk will not stand the test of the word of Christ before us. The unconverted are what they are because they have no will to be better. Light is come into the world, and men love darkness rather than light. John chapter 3, verse 19. The words of the Lord Jesus will silence many. I would have gathered you, and ye would not be gathered. Matthew chapter 23, verse 37. Let us mark, secondly, in this passage, one principal cause of unbelief. The Lord Jesus says to the Jews, How can ye believe, which receive honor one of another, and not seek the honor that cometh of God only? He meant by that saying that they were not honest in their religion. 
With all their apparent desire to hear and learn, they cared more in reality for pleasing man than God. In this state of mind they were never likely to believe. A deep principle is contained in the saying of our Lord's, and one that deserves special attention. True faith does not depend merely on the state of man's head and understanding, but on the state of his heart. His mind may be convinced, his conscience may be pricked, but so long as there is anything the man is secretly loving more than God, there will be no true faith. The man himself may be puzzled, and wonder why he does not believe. He does not see that he is like a child sitting on the lid of his box, and wishing to open it, but not considering that his own weight keeps it shut. Let a man make sure that he honestly and really desires first the praise of God. It is the want of an honest heart which makes many stick fast in their religion all their days, and die at length without peace. Those who complain that they hear, and approve, and assent, but make no progress, and cannot get any hold on Christ, should ask themselves this simple question, Am I honest? Am I sincere? Do I really desire the first praise of God? Let us mark, lastly in this passage, the manner in which Christ speaks of Moses. He says to the Jews, Had ye believed Moses, ye would have believed me, for he wrote of me. These words demand our special attention in these later days. That there really was such a person as Moses, that he really was the author of the writings commonly ascribed to him, on both these points our Lord's testimony is distinct. He wrote of me. Can we suppose for a moment that our Lord was only accommodating himself to the prejudices and traditions of his hearers, and that he spoke of Moses as a writer, though he knew in his heart that Moses never wrote at all? Such an idea is profane. It would make out our Lord to have been dishonest. Can we suppose for a moment that our Lord was ignorant about Moses, and did not know the wonderful discoveries which learned men, falsely so called, have made in the nineteenth century? Such an idea is ridiculous blasphemy. To imagine the Lord Jesus speaking ignorantly in such a chapter as the one before us is to strike at the root of all Christianity. There is but one conclusion about the matter. There was such a person as Moses. The writings commonly ascribed to him were written by him. The facts recorded in them are worthy of all credit. Our Lord's testimony is an unanswerable argument. The skeptical writers against Moses and the Pentateuch have greatly erred. Let us beware of handling the Old Testament irreverently, and allowing our minds to doubt the truth of any part of it because of alleged difficulties. The simple fact that the writers of the New Testament continually refer to the Old Testament and speak even of the most miraculous events recorded in it as undoubtedly true should silence our doubts. Is it at all likely, probable or credible, that we of the nineteenth century are better informed about Moses than Jesus and his apostles? God forbid that we should think so. Then let us stand fast, and not doubt that every word in the Old Testament, as well as in the New, was given by inspiration of God. Notes, John chapter 5, verses 40 to 47. Verse 40. And ye will not come to me, life. The connection between this verse and the preceding one is not very clear. It is one of those abrupt, elliptical transitions which occur frequently in St. John's writings. I conjecture the link must be something of this kind. The scriptures testify plainly of me, and yet in the face of this testimony ye have no will or inclination to come to me by faith, that ye may have eternal life through me. 
This verse evidently begins the third part of our Lord's address to the Jews. He had declared the relation between himself and God the Father. He had brought forward the evidence of his own divine commission and his claim to be received as the Messiah. And now he concludes by a most heart-piercing appeal to the consciences of his enemies, in which he exposes the true state of their hearts and the real reasons why they did not believe him. If ever men were plainly dealt with and received home thrusts as to their own spiritual condition, it was on this occasion. In reading the conclusion of this chapter, one cannot but feel that a miraculous restraint must have been put on our Lord's enemies. Otherwise it is difficult to understand how they could have allowed him to bring such cutting and truthful charges against them. If ministers desire a warrant for dealing plainly with their hearers, and addressing them directly and personally about their sins, they have only to look at their divine master's words in this passage. The opening charge that our Lord makes, Ye will not come to me, misses much of its force in the English language. It is not the future tense of come that is used in the Greek. Two distinct verbs are employed. The right meaning is, Ye do not will to come. Ye have no heart, desire, or inclination to come to me. Let it be noted here that, 1. We are all by nature dead in sins. That, 2. Spiritual life is laid up for sinners in Christ alone. He is the fountain of life. That, 3. In order to receive benefit from Christ, men must come to him by faith and believe. Believing is coming. And, finally, 4. That the real reasons why men do not come to Christ, and consequently die in their sins, is their want of will to come. Let it be carefully noted that both here and elsewhere the loss of man's soul is always attributed in Scripture to man's own want of will to be saved. It is not any decree of God. It is not God's unwillingness to receive. It is not any limitation of Christ's redeeming work and atonement. It is not any want of wide, broad, free, full invitations to repent and believe. It is simply and entirely man's own fault, his want of will. Forever let us cleave to this doctrine. Man's salvation, if saved, is entirely of God. Man's ruin, if lost, is entirely of himself. He loves darkness rather than light. He will have his own way. We should observe, in this concluding part of our Lord's address, that he charges the Jews with four distinct sins. 1. Want of real will to come to him. 2. Want of real love to God. 3. Undue desire of man's praise. 4. Want of real faith in Moses' writings. Verse 41. I receive not honor from men. The connection between these words and the preceding verse is again not very clear. I conjecture that it must be as follows. I do not say these things as if I desired the praise and honor of man. I do not complain of your not coming to me, as if I only came into the world to seek man's praise. It is not on my own account that I mention your unbelief, but on yours, because it shows the state of your hearts. Do not suppose that I stand in need of followers, and am covetous of man's favor. Verse 42. But I know you, not the love of God, etc. The sense and connection here appears to be as follows. But the plain truth is that I know and have long known the state of your hearts, and I know that you have no real love of God in you. You profess to worship the one true God and to give him honor, but you show by your conduct that with all your professions you do not really love God. 
To a Jewish hearer this tremendous charge must have been peculiarly galling. It was a charge that none but our Lord could make with equal decision, because he read men's hearts and knew what was in them. The word, I know, is literally, I have known. Alfred paraphrases the sentence. By long trial and bearing with your manners these many generations, and personally also, I have known, and do know you. In another place we find our Lord naming this sin as one of the special sins of the Pharisees. Woe unto you, Pharisees! For ye tithe mint and rue, and all manner of herbs, and pass over judgment and the love of God. Luke chapter 11 verse 42 Ferris remarks that the incredulity of the Jews did not arise from want of evidence, but from want of love towards God. Verse 43. I am come in my Father's name, receive me not. This sentence contains a proof of the assertion made in the preceding verse. You show that you have no real love for God by your not receiving me, who have come in my Father's name, and desire nothing so much as his honor. If you really loved me and honored God as you professed to do, you would gladly receive and honor his Son. If another, in his own name, him ye will receive. In this sentence our Lord supposes a case to show the corrupt and carnal state of the Jews' hearts. If another public teacher shall appear, giving himself out to be some great one, not seeking God's honor, and doing all in God's name, but aiming to exalt himself, and get honor to himself, you will receive and believe him. You reject me, the true Son of God. You are ready to receive any false pretender who comes among you, though he may give no honor to the God whom you profess to worship. It is true, then, that you have no real love of God in you. I believe decidedly that our Lord spoke these words prophetically. He had in view the many false Christs and false messiahs who arose within the first hundred years after his death, and by whom so many Jews were invariably deluded. According to Steer, no less than sixty-four false messiahs appeared to them, and were more or less believed. The readiness with which they believed these impostors is a remarkable historical fact, and a striking fulfillment of the words before us. They proved as forward to believe these pretenders to a divine mission who came in their own names, as they had been backward to believe our Lord. I may add, however, that I am one of those who doubt whether the words of our Lord have even yet received their complete fulfillment. I think it highly probable that the world may yet see a personal Antichrist arise, who will succeed in obtaining credence from a vast portion of the Jewish nation. Then, and not till then, when Antichrist has appeared, this verse will be completely accomplished. Chrysostom, Cyril, Theophylact, Euthymius, Alcyon, Hyensius, take this view. Steer remarks, he of whom the Lord here prophesies is finally Antichrist, with his open and avowed denial of God and of Christ, with his most daring, I, before which all the proud will humbly bow down, because they will find themselves in him, and will honor him as their true God. As the Father reveals himself in Christ, so will Satan manifest himself in Antichrist, and give him all his work and witness, and all his own honor as the prince of this world, and the wicked will yield themselves to him, because through unbelief they have already fallen into his nature, and fitly belong to him. Wordsworth remarks, The fathers were generally of opinion, grounded on this passage, that Antichrist would be received by the Jews. Verse 44. How can ye believe, etc., etc. This verse contains a very important principle. The substance of the meaning seems to be as follows. 
our lord tells the jews that they were not likely to believe so long as they cared more for the praise of man than the praise of god the true cause of their unbelief was a want of honesty and godly sincerity with all their professed zeal for god they did not really care so much for pleasing him as for pleasing man in this state of mind they were never likely to have faith or to come to the knowledge of the truth how can ye believe receiving and seeking honour from one another as ye do now it is not possible that ye can believe until you cease from your present earthly mindedness and honestly desire god's praise more than man's the great principle contained in this verse is the close connection between the state of a man's heart and his possessing the gift of faith believing or not believing to have faith or not to have faith is not a thing that depends only on a man's head being satisfied and his intellect convinced it depends far more on the state of a man's heart if a man is not thoroughly honest in his professed desire to find out the truth in religion if he secretly cherishes any idol which he is resolved not to give up if he privately cares for anything more than god's praise he will go on to the end of his days doubting perplexed dissatisfied and restless and will never find the way to peace his insincerity of heart is an insuperable barrier in the way of his believing there is a mine of wisdom in the expression an honest and good heart luke chapter eight verse fifteen for want of it many a one complains that he cannot get comfort in religion and cannot see his way towards heaven when the truth is that his own dishonesty of heart is the cause there is something he loves more than god the consequence is that he never feels an honest will to believe the can in this verse should be compared with the will in the fortieth verse ye cannot because ye will not from god only this expression would be more literally rendered from the only god the one true god whom the jews boasted that they alone knew and worshipped doddridge remarks that the whole verse has much more spirit in it if we consider it as applied to the members of the sanhedrin who had such distinguished titles of honour than if we only take it as spoken to a mixed multitude if as many suppose our lord was making a formal defence of himself and his divine mission before the great ecclesiastical assembly of the jews his words in this verse would come home to his hearers with stinging power verse forty five do not think that i will accuse etc we must not suppose that our lord literally meant that there was any real likelihood of moses or himself standing up to make a formal accusation against the jews what he did mean was that not to believe him was not to believe moses there was no need for him to accuse them of unbelief moses himself for whom they professed such respect might be their accuser and prove them guilty even now he says moses accuseth you his writings daily read in your synagogue are a constant witness of your unbelief there may also it is highly probable be a reference here to the song of moses where he predicts the unbelief of the people and desires the book of the law to be put in the side of the ark that it may be there for a witness against thee deuteronomy chapter thirty two verse twenty six chemnitius remarks what the lord says to the jews is exactly as if i were to say to the papists it is not i but the very fathers whose authority ye allege in favour of your superstition who accuse you of impiety or as if we were to say to the pope it is not we who accuse and condemn thee but christ himself whose vicar thou callest thyself and peter whose successor thou wilt have thyself and paul whose sword thou pretendest to bear they it is who will accuse thee 
Beza makes much the same remark, and observes that none will be more opposed to the Roman Catholics in the Judgment Day than the Virgin Mary and the saints in whom they profess to trust. The notion of some Romanists that the expression, Moses in whom ye trust, justifies the invocation of saints, and putting confidence in them as mediators, is, as Chimnidius observes, too weak and groundless to need refutation. Verse 46. For had ye believed Moses, me, these words are simply an amplification of the idea in the preceding verse. If the Jews had really believed Moses, they could not have helped believing Christ. The witness of Moses to Christ was so distinct, express, and unmistakable, that true belief in his writings must inevitably have led them to belief in Christ. He wrote of me. These words are very remarkable. In what sense our Lord used them, we cannot exactly know. At the very least, we may conclude he meant that throughout the five books of Moses, by direct prophecy, by typical persons, by typical ceremonies, in many ways and in diverse manners, Moses had written of him. There is probably a depth of meaning in the Pentateuch that has never yet been fully fathomed. We shall probably find at the last day that Christ was in many a chapter and many a verse, and yet we knew it not. There is a fullness in all scripture far beyond our conception. Let us note carefully that our Lord distinctly speaks of Moses as a real person who, as a matter of history, lived and wrote books, and of his writings as true, genuine writings deserving of all credit and of undeniable authority. In the face of such an expression as this, it is a mournful fact that any man called a Christian can throw doubt on the existence of Moses, or on the authority of the books attributed to him. To say, as some have done, that our Lord was only accommodating himself to the conventional language of the times, and that he did not really mean to assert his own belief either in the existence of Moses or the authority of his writings, is to charge him with downright dishonesty. It represents him as one aiding and countenancing the dissemination of a lie. To say, as some have done, that our Lord, born of a Jewish woman and brought up among Jews, was not above the ignorant prejudices of the Jews, and did not really know that Moses ever existed, and that his writings are full of mistakes, is to talk downright blasphemy and nonsense. Fancy the eternal Son of God at any time talking ignorantly. Fancy above all that any trace of Jewish ignorance would be likely to be found in this chapter of St. John's Gospel, in which above all other chapters, perhaps, our Lord's divine knowledge is most strikingly brought out. Verse 47 if ye believe not his writings, etc. This verse is an extension of the thought contained in the preceding one, and a solemn and mournful conclusion of the whole address. There is evidently an intentional contrast between writings and words, as if our Lord would remind the Jews that writings are generally more relied upon than sayings. If ye do not really believe what your own honored lawgiver, Moses, wrote, and it is plain that you do not, it is not likely that you will believe what I say. If you have no real faith in the things written in your scriptures by that very Moses, for whom you profess such reverence, your favorite teacher and lawgiver, it is not to be wondered at that you will have no faith in what I say, and that I speak to you in vain. The Greek word used here for writings is very remarkable. It is generally translated letters, as in Luke chapter 23, verse 38. In Second Timothy chapter 3, verse 15, it is rendered scriptures. To my mind, it is a strong indirect evidence in favor of the verbal inspiration of scripture. 
there is a sense in which these words should ring painfully in the ears of all the modern assailants of the mosaic writings it is just as true now i firmly believe as it was eighteen hundred years ago they cannot divide moses and christ if they do not believe the one they will find sooner or later that they do not believe the other if they begin with casting off moses and not believing his writings they will find in the end that to be consistent they must cast off christ if they will not have the old testament they will discover at last that they cannot have the new the two are so linked together that they cannot be separated what god hath joined together let no man put asunder in concluding the notes on this wonderful chapter one would like to know how this marvellous address was received by those who heard it but here we meet with one of the peculiar silences of scripture not one word is written to tell us what the jews of jerusalem thought of our lord's argument or what effect it had upon them our own duty is clear let us take heed that it has some effect on ourselves the amazing fullness of our lord's teaching appears most strikingly in the address contained in this chapter within the short span of twenty-nine verses we find no less than eleven mighty subjects brought forward one the intimate relation of the father and the son two the divine commission and dignity of the son three the privileges of the man who believes four the quickening of the spiritually dead five the judgment six the resurrection of the body seven the value of miracles eight the scriptures nine the corruption of man's will the secret of man's ruin ten the love of man's praise the cause of unbelief eleven the importance of the writings of moses end of section twenty four